Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. If you're an ambitious woman who wants to dominate your career, then you are in the right place. This podcast is co-hosted by Nikki Barua, digital innovator, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker. And Monica Marquez, ex-Googler, diversity expert, and senior corporate leader. From inspiring stories to cutting-edge strategies, you'll learn how to develop the skill set, mindset, and tool set to get future-ready fast and accelerate your success. Hi, I'm Monica Marquez, your host for today's episode. Have you ever experienced a situation where you got invited to a party and with anxious excitement, you dressed to impress, only to walk in to find everyone else wearing their favorite superhero costume, leaving you wondering, wait, what the, how did I not get that memo? Well, in today's episode, we get to know Minda Hartz, author of the best-selling book, The Memo, where she shares some critical unwritten rules to help women of color not only gain a seat at the table, but know what to do at the table. Minda is an assistant professor at NYU Wagner. She's been featured on MSNBC's Morning Joe, Fast Company, The Guardian, and Time Magazine. She also hosts a weekly podcast called Secure the Seat. In this episode, Minda shares how she found the courage to write this book and share vulnerable, authentic stories of what it's like to advance your career in light of the inequality and outright discrimination many women of color experience in the workplace. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com, where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources referenced in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Minda. Welcome, Minda. Thank you so much for joining us on the Beyond Barriers podcast. We're super excited to have you here and learn more about your background and your book called The Memo. And I love the message that um, you share in it. And so let's... um, dig right into it and start off with, you know, sharing a little bit about your journey and what you've learned along the way and what brought you to writing the book, The Memo. Well, thank you, Monica, for having me today. It's so exciting to be in conversation with you. So for me, one of the, I think the biggest tip that I learned or that I'm still learning is that self-advocacy is so important. That's Mm. a tool that I didn't realize that I needed because when I started out my career, I was the first uh, person in my family to graduate from college. And then I also was the first person to enter into a corporate job. And so this whole time I'd been told, you just, just work hard and keep your head down mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the right people will, will notice you. And if you work hard, those are the people that get ahead. And so I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And when I did that, I realized um, coming in early, staying till, you know, midnight, it wasn't getting me any further, (laughs) more tired and stressed out. Uh, but then I realized that others were, were finding their way a little bit faster than me, but they weren't doing more work than me, or they weren't doing it better than me, but they Mm -hmm. were building relationships. And that was one of the the key things that these people were advocating for themselves. And Mm -hmm. so once I realized that, oh, I have to be my biggest advocate uh, and Mm -hmm. let people know what I'm doing uh, by articulating my value. And I think that was the biggest thing. Once I lifted my head up and realized Mm -hmm. what was going on, then I said, oh, okay, you know, the Bobs or whomever of the world, they need to know what I'm doing. I can't just assume they know. And I I think that was really important for me. And it helped me um, figure out what I wanted in my career, asking Mm -hmm. for what I needed and not just assuming. But then I noticed that other women of color, like friends of mine, 
mm-hmm. they were afraid to ask for what they wanted, right? And right. Some of those things. And so it was part of just this body of work that I wanted to add to a collection of career narratives, one that included uh, women of color. Mm-hmm. Congratulations to you for discovering that so quickly and early in your career because, um, you know, I think we lived parallel lives where I myself was, you know, from a very traditional Mexican-American family, um, packed up my bags and moved to New York City and, you know, came into the real world, but also being taught and being nurtured that work hard, you know, keep your head down, work really hard and the right people will notice. Um, And you know, you sit there and scratch your head after a year or so of doing it and be like, what's going on? And that's really hard to do sometimes when you're the, you feel like you're the only one and you don't see other women of color. So um, that is a beautiful story. And I'm excited because it's kind of like, well, I never got that memo (laughs) that you're supposed to, that that you're supposed to like do this thing called self-promotion and how do you do it? Because my family calls it bragging. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) How do you get over it and things like that? So help me, um, you know, help our audience understand how did you, what were the first steps that you took in, in, in terms of getting comfortable with um, raising your head and, and, and then in a way building those relationships, but then self-promoting in a way that didn't go against the grain of your you know, moral compass in terms of feeling like, oh my God, I'm selling myself out. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think, and I must say that I, it took me a while before I figured it out <laughs> because I was so frustrated by, you know, some of my counterparts. I was happy that they were getting promoted, but I'm like, over me, really? Is this happening? <laughs> you know, like, what am I doing wrong? Um, and so I kept beating myself up trying to figure out, you know, could I do more things? Could I stay later? And once I realized that that was, that wasn't, that code wasn't going to crack anything, right? <laughs> right. Harder bit. Um, and really, I just took a step back because to your point, I didn't have anybody in my immediate circle that could brainstorm with me, right? Or mm-hmm. they could empathize in a way, but they had never been in the situation. Um, and so I didn't know what I didn't know. At first, it was a lot of, I think it was the mindset Mm-hmm. Because I started having what I talk about in the book, this enemy state of mind, like, well, maybe I don't belong here. Maybe I'm never mm-hmm. going to get the seat. Maybe I, you know, maybe I can't cut it. Maybe I shouldn't be here. You know, I am the only one. And so before I was able to self-advocate, mm-hmm. I was more self-deprecating <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. the situation because I thought it was me, right? right? I didn't realize that there was this whole other system going on and it required relationship building, right? Mm-hmm. It required um, identifying people who could speak your name when you're not in the room, right? That know mm-hmm. your strengths and could mentor, potentially sponsor you. But I didn't have the language and I didn't know. And so once I realized that it wasn't me, that took a while mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to shift to this empire state of mind, I realized that if I connect with the right people, take a step back and assess what's going on. Who are the people that I think hold similar values as me, right? Mm-hmm. You know, integrity, generosity, who are some of those people? Maybe they don't look like me in mm-hmm. terms of skin color, but mm-hmm. at the heart, the, the, uh, the humanity pieces, you know, mm. who, who are those people, right? And I started mm-hmm. to look around the leadership table and I started to identify people that I thought might, I might have something in common with. And that's when I started one by one, because I'm an introvert uh, mm-hmm. at heart, but I realized that <laughs> you know, even introverts, we want to see sometimes too, right? So I had to start one by one and start building relationships with people. And once I got out of my own way, 
Monica, I knew, yes, there were systemic issues embedded in my workplace culture. So that's a whole different conversation, but there was mm-hmm. things that I could do, right? Mm-hmm. What, what, what could I do to self uh, pr- promote in a way that was still authentic to me? And it wasn't like, Hey, look at me, but I found it through relationship building and, you know, mm. talking and sharing projects that I'm excited about. And, and that was, that was comfortable for me. You made a really critical, <clears throat> important um, note that you started looking for individuals who maybe didn't look like you, didn't have the same skin color as you, but had the same kind of um, thinking as you. Um, I think that's super important because I hear from a lot of young women that um, that I coach and, and other clients that they struggle, that they're looking for someone that looks like them. And I think the important point to make is that you know, even when I joined, um, honestly, some of the biggest opportunities came from individuals who did not look like me. Um, And they were males or, you know, women who I didn't think I had anything in common with. And when I allowed myself to get to know them, there was a lot more in common than, than I truly ever understood that or ever would have, you know, given them the benefit of the doubt for. So tell me a little bit about or share with us, you know, what were some of the proudest accomplishments that you may have achieved, but came from, you know, the unusual suspect? (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's funny, I, thinking back, even just on people who gave me a a shot, you know, or Mm -hmm. gave me opportunities, uh, because I was one of the only ones, there wasn't anyone I could look for that looked like me, right? So it's either, Mm -hmm. I'm going to make these connections, or I'm going to keep, you know, being frustrated. (laughs) So, (laughs) I realized that I had that choice, right? And so um, one gentleman in particular, his name is Steve, and he was in senior leadership. And once I started to build a relationship with him, it took several months uh, before I think I found that that rapport, right? And still mm-hmm. he started to see himself in me because I think at first maybe he was even kind of like, mm, I don't know, you know, I don't know this girl, what's, what's this all about? Mm-hmm. But um, if it wasn't for me, Um, you know, when I'd see him in the elevator and he would say hi, you know, I'd introduce myself or if he'd say once I we got on a, you know, first name basis, then he'd say, Minda, how's it going when he'd see me and I wouldn't say, oh, fine and shy away. I'd say, oh, you know, Steve, I'm working on this really great project that Mm. I want you to know about, you know, like I'd really get that opportunity to talk to him. And after several months, um, I asked him if I could have some time on his calendar. But the other thing I'll say is I I made relationship with his executive assistant too, right? Mm, so she was yes. helping kind of manifest <laughs> right. <laughs> so behind the scenes. But I tell that story because it took, you know, almost seven, eight months before I had my first meeting with him, you know, mm-hmm. so patience is definitely a virtue. And even after that, I didn't know that anything would happen. But what I will say is because of that, he ended up listening to me, seeing me and wanting to first mentor me, but then sponsor me. And mm-hmm. He gave me um, amazing opportunities to staff the president because I was covering a, a territory that he would frequent often. Mm-hmm. And when everyone said, no, Minda's not ready, she's too junior, he said, I, I vouch for her, right? He, and mm-hmm. he's like, don't let me down. And after that happened, I became, um, I would staff the, the president every time he came to Silicon Valley, right? Mm-hmm. You know, wow. And so mm-hmm. that allowed me to meet, you know, men that were on the the cover of Fortune magazine that allowed mm-hmm. me to be in rooms that I never would have been in probably 20 years it would have took me to get there right and so mm-hmm. he accelerated my career and gave me opportunities yes on paper 
I, it may have told a different story. Maybe I wasn't, I didn't have the 10 to 15 years experience, but he knew I could do the job. And I think, you know, I talk about the book allyship and mm -hmm. he was a success partner. You know, he partnered with me on the road to success and mm -hmm. it was those small wins that accumulated into big wins. And I, and I really thank Steve because it allowed me to see that you don't have to necessarily connect with people who look like you, right? It's always mm -hmm. nice when it happens. Right. There's all sorts of people. And sometimes we discount others and they discount us, right? It's the bias mm -hmm. that's sometimes embedded in the culture. One really important thing that you mentioned, um, and I love the habit that you, um, most of us, miss the opportunity when people say, hey, how's it going? And we're like, oh, good. The weather outside is wonderful or whatever. <laughs> um, and you use those opportunities to kind of drop some, I would say, um, you know, just little brag bites, right? Or what you were working on. Um, share with our audience maybe some of the other things that you share in your book, The Memo of, of Secure the Seat. So I'm curious what you, you know, your podcast is also called Secure the Seat. <laughs> what, you know, what does that mean or what's the hidden message in that? Yeah, you know, it's funny because right now, uh, many of us are, depending on where you live, you know, you have to stay in the house right now mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, for quarantine purposes. And I tell a lot of people now, it's like, you could still secure your seat from the house, right? Mm -hmm. Your career goals don't stop because you're in a different location. And so part of securing the seat is owning the space that you that you want to create, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm real, a, a firm believer in, um, it's not just, it's not about tables and chairs, right? It has nothing mm -hmm. to do with that. It's more so of the ownership. How are we owning the space and the, um, the power, the influence that we have? Because we all have a sphere of influence. Maybe you don't want to be in the C-suite, but you still want to be in management, right? How right. are you positioning yourself to own that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and part of ownership is making sure that you're invested in other people's success as well. And so I talk about securing the seat is not just for us, but mm -hmm. it's about others as well because success is not a solo sport. If I'm doing well, then I want others on my team to do well mm. and vice versa. And so I feel like with oftentimes there's this very much a me, me, me kind of uh, mentality when we get into these leadership positions, but realizing that once you get there, what are you going to do with that? And, mm -hmm. and I'll also say too, a lot of times I meet a lot of women of color in particular and they're like, well, do I have the seat because you know, I'm a diversity hire or and, and, and. And I said, you know what? I don't know the answer to that, but you know what? You have that seat now. So it's what will you do with it? How will mm. you influence the room right. now that you have it? And I think that there's so much uh, that we can do in these positions. And so what are we doing to make the workplace better than we found it when we do secure that seat? Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about gender nuanced struggles, right? And then you have to add the intersectionality of that layer of being a woman of color. Um, were there any fears or limiting beliefs that prevented you from pursuing what you wanted? Or you, do you struggle with that on a, you know, on a regular basis? Or have you been able to kind of like push that away and put it away in a drawer? Um, how, do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, you know, it's, it's again, that, that shift in, in the mindset, because I think that the narrative that many of our workplaces will show us is that people of color, women of color, marginalized groups, they can only get so far in mm -hmm. the workplace, right? And if you're the lucky one that breaks through, you know, mm -hmm. the force field, then, then you've made it and you get the prize, right? And <laughs> so I think sometimes the story that we're seeing play out would dictate what we think is possible. Mm -hmm. for ourselves. And so what I found is that 
sometimes we have to be willing to make the hard decisions. And that's something that I had to do in my career because Mm -hmm. at one particular place, I was working so hard to be seen. I was working so hard, you know, once I got to the table, then to prove that I belonged at the table, you know, Mm -hmm. there's always this proving and it can be very exhausting. I don't know if many of our counterparts understand Mm -hmm. what it's like to sometimes be one of the only ones and, and do uh, have to do the work, but then also have to uh, navigate, um, mm-hmm. you know, bias and uh, conscious or unconscious. But one of the things that I think is important is that to remind ourselves that we have options. And that's something that I had to remind myself because mm-hmm. um, some environments are never, we're never going to have that seat at the table, right? <laughs> uh, or it's always going to be a struggle. So at what point do we strategize to find the right seat, to find the right environment, to find the mm-hmm. right people who want to be invested in our success? And I think oftentimes we, I make the kind of funny analogy of um, there's a singer uh, by the name of Ashanti and she says all the things that we accept be the things that we regret. Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes so many of us as, you know, underserved populations, we've accepted so much that we shouldn't have. Right. And we mm-hmm. later regret it. And so what would it look like to find those spaces where you can thrive and not mm-hmm. just survive? And I think sometimes we get comfortable in the dysfunction sometimes, right? And we don't right. want to move forward, but that's part of building your network so that you can find opportunities and assess where the best place is for you. Because I do believe that we can have a future of work of work where we can, where equity is possible for everybody, not just some, if that makes sense. Mm. What's your approach on assessing kind of the risks and the rewards and making those decisions with certainty and confidence? Yeah, um, it's funny. I ended up staying at, at one place probably 10 years too long, right? Because mm-hmm. you, at least you know what you're up against. You know, you right. um, and, and you become accustomed, at least for me, uh, I'll speak for myself. I was making a good amount of money, all of these different things. They're so like, oh, you know what? I know, I know what this racism feels like. You know, I don't want to go to another situation. But what I realized when I get frustrated with some of my colleagues that I was making the, the decision to stay, right? And, and, mm-hmm deal. And I can't be upset about that if that's the decisions that I, that I made for myself. But what I will say is the framework that I use um, or that I started to use was, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs in mm. a career context. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what are my basic uh, needs that need to be met up to the self-actualization? You know, is this job providing me those things? What are my short-term and long-term goals? Mm-hmm. Is this situation, am I here because it's going to get me further up that pyramid, right? So I can suss it out a little bit longer because right. <laughs> it's going to get me here. Right. Or am I driving myself crazy um, and I'm never going to get what I need out of this career context? And so mm-hmm. think about the things that we're saying yes to and does it align with what we want, right? So that's mm-hmm. how, is it worth staying or for a little bit longer or do I need to strategize somewhere else? And I think once we realize that we have so much control over our careers, even though Sometimes the story that we tell ourselves is this is as good as it's going to get, but there, there's, there's hope. There's something on the other side, but make sure that you're making work work for you. It's right. that's possible. I love that. Make sure that you're making work work for you. That's an important <laughs> piece is that you have control and should be proactive in managing that career. And I think that's what happens where you said a lot of us get complacent because you're making good money and at least you know what to expect. Um, so you you kind of build this kind of tough skin or callous skin and, and you deal with it. Tell me when you do make these changes, when you do switch, um, switch lanes or switch roles um, and you get to the new organization 
with this new profound kind of mindset. You're going to start over. And then you experience the unintended microaggression or microassault for the first time at this new organization. What do you do? That's a really great question, Monica. And I think about a piece in the book, um, a chapter called Empire State of Mind. And it, it's something that I've experienced because I did leave one job and go to mm-hmm. another. And I started to see things ooh, that I, I wasn't prepared for, right? That didn't, mm-hmm. I, I must have missed somewhere in the interview process. <laughs> and um, what I realized was, again, we do have these choices, right? But mm-hmm. um, what I didn't do was that I didn't have certain conversations that probably needed to be had, right? Mm-hmm. But then also, there was a level of this like, PTSD, because Mm -hmm. if you've left one situation that caused you somewhat workplace trauma, and then you go into another one and you see certain things uh, that are triggers, Mm -hmm. it can also set you off, right? And it Mm -hmm. may or may not be like the last place or the new place. So you have to be able to um, really allow yourself to be open to what does this really mean, right? Is this, Mm -hmm. where is this, where's this intention coming from? (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. I know uh, for me, when I went to work in the South, at one point in my life, I was exposed to coming from Los Angeles, going to the South, you know, things were said that I was not prepared for (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. in many cases. And so I actually had to be, okay, this is what people are used to saying. This is normal, right? It's not Mm -hmm. right, but it's normal to, to this environment. And for me, I had to figure out, okay, is this, what is this? And so a long story short is what I will say. I had to learn how to have courageous conversations with my colleagues. Mm-hmm. And so maybe the one time, okay, but if it's continuous, then I have to let them know, you know, this is not okay. And this is why it's not okay. And uh, I know you may not have meant any harm because what I realized is the more that I pushed those things under the rug, it wasn't, a, I was collecting the trauma, right? Mm-hmm. And I wasn't mm-hmm. allowing my um, colleagues to be courageous listeners because I was assuming that maybe they couldn't handle what I was going to say in a diplomatic way, but I had mm-hmm. to also put myself first. And I hope as we move into, you know, the future of work, we learn to have these courageous conversations, but also be courageous listeners to hear Mm -hmm. what someone might have to say that may be shocking to you to hear, or maybe you didn't mean it the way that you said it, but you still need to be a courageous listener. I love what you just said around being a courageous listener and giving the other person the benefit of the doubt that they can be a courageous listener. And I think that's the um, the root of maybe the f- our fear sometimes is that we have this fear that the outcome is going to be negative. And so we don't even bother to have that courageous conversation. I like to call them teachable moments. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'll pause and I'll say, hey, listen, what you just said, I totally know there was no intent and luckily you said it to me because I have a better understanding of how to manage these, but you could offend somebody somebody by doing this. And most of the time they were so grateful that I shared that with them. They had no idea. And it was 99% of the time, the there was no intent. There was no malintent. They had no idea that there, that what they were saying could be taken in, you know, offense in in any way. So I love the courageous listener piece. I never thought about it from that perspective of, um, you know, giving them the badge of you're a courageous listener, be a courageous listener for me right now. And it kind of gives you a little bit of the, it relieves some of your stress, right? Of, okay, they're, they're, they're big kids. (laughs) They're adults. (laughs) They're not kids. They they can, they can handle this and we'll go from there. 
So switching gears a little bit, tell me a little bit um, where you had to identify and create yourself, create a community, um, a support system, a circle around you because you didn't necessarily come with it. Um, I know that for a lot of the women and clients that I work with, they struggle with really tapping and leveraging their network. How have you gotten over that um, or how have you developed the mindset to know that your community, your network is an unlimited resource for you? Yeah. Uh, so I will say that it took me a while to figure that part out uh, because I think sometimes, and I'll speak for myself, but you know, growing up in a, a black household, I think you, in, the, in my household anyway, you become self-sufficient, you know, in mm -hmm. some ways. And right. so you're used to kind of like doing these things on your own. And so I think for me, it took a while to um, ask for help when I needed it. But then also, mm. I was really good at saying, do you need something, right? But I was never giving myself that space to let people know that I needed something. And, mm -hmm. um, and that's where I came to this success is not a solo sport. Like I can't do all the things. I can do a lot, but I can't do it all, right? And mm -hmm. I can't get everything I need out of this, you know, life. And so it will require me to partner with other mm -hmm. people. And so when I look at it in that way, more of a partnership, you know, how I'm not just taking from people, but how do we make this reciprocal? Mm -hmm. And so that for me, uh, eased kind of my anxieties, uh, to do that. And I think when you definitely, when you become, um, an author or an entrepreneur, you really have to lean into, um, your, mm -hmm. your network or your squad of people to help you because you realize that there's things, there's strengths that are in others that you need, right. Or resources. And so, mm -hmm. um, for me, I just realized that it's so beneficial and it's a way that people can give back in various ways, right? Um, mm -hmm. In intangible ways. And so I think that once we realize that we do need that board of directors or squad or whatever you have, have you in, in mine, I call it a, in my book, I call it a top eight, like having those people that you mm -hmm. can resource this brain trust, like in, um, and I get so much out of it when I don't try to do it all because again, we, we sit in our own thoughts a lot, right? And so it's mm -hmm. nice to have other people who can who can say, oh, yeah, that's great. Or, you know, have you thought about this? And so I, I think it's worth it having other people. I know it's been um, priceless to have that kind of circle. And it, but it took time to create, right? Because it's part of that relationship building mm -hmm. uh, that you do with people and, and the vulnerability, which is, you know, another piece of letting people in. Your top yeah. eight. I love that. Yes. So really identifying who it is. And I think the other important thing is really identifying within that eight, someone who is going to be your truth teller, <laughs> someone who's going to be your cheerleader, and then someone who is really going to um, help you see things in a different light. Yes. Um, but I think the one that, you know, I always have a hard time finding is the truth teller of someone who's just going to tell me how it is and tell me when I'm wrong and not really care how I feel. Yeah. And I may be upset with them at first, but realizing that if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't know the truth at all. Absolutely. So that's where we're ha we have to become courageous listeners. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. I need to wear that badge of a courageous listener. I'm going to start using that, Minda. So, um, so know that you have, I, I've taken away that um, I need to be a courageous listener, but then that, you know, have faith that most people are courageous listeners if you just give them the opportunity to do yes. so. Um, so with your book, you, your book has been out, um, lots of women and women of color reading it. What was surprising uh, to you that most of them were coming back with that they had an epiphany after reading your book? 
<laughs> I think the networking piece was mm. the key, right? I think the mm-hmm. whole, like we talked about at the beginning of working really hard with your head down uh-huh. and wondering why these promotions aren't happening for you and all of that. And so understanding that um, things happen outside of your cube, right? Mm-hmm. Are, are you going to, <laughs> to the work, you know, the break room birthday parties? Are you going to the events, you know, after work? And so, so many, I mean, more than I can count, thousands of uh, definitely women of color have been like, oh, you know what? I wasn't doing that. I just wanted to do my work and leave. But now I've put myself out there and I've made relationships with people who I mm-hmm. had never even knew knew I existed, right? And just those small modifications to their behavior inside of the workplace. So understanding that you need other people, right? You can only Mm -hmm. do so much on your own. And then I'll say uh, for people who aren't women of color who read the book, um, who were like, wow, you know, I didn't even realize I hadn't even thought about what it's like for someone to Mm -hmm. be the only one in this space or that I'm managing diverse talent. And I hadn't considered you know, what they're dealing with mm-hmm. when a, you know, a Trayvon Martin situation happens the night before, right. you know, mm-hmm. et cetera. So um, under, I, I love that people are finding that, yes, on the cover, it may look like this book is only for, you know, women that look like us, but it's really a book about equity in the workplace and, and everyone should read it. So I, I love that. That's what I hoped, Monica, mm-hmm. but to hear it back uh, that people are starting to see it that way, it, it definitely feels good. It's, it's amazing to see that people have that aha moment. And I think the important thing that you also mentioned was the allies around us. A lot of the times they just don't know. And part of it is our fault because we haven't had the um, courage to have the courageous conversations and give them those teachable moments because when you do that, it really does create this transformational moment for them. And they see themselves in a different light as someone who can help and who can assist and really open doors at the end of the day. And everybody that I have encountered when I've, I've opened up and I've shared with them some of my fears or my anxieties or, you know, part of the reason that maybe I'm not presenting my authentic self, um, they immediately jump into this role where they want to the help. They want to help and they want to help open doors and sponsor and whatnot. So I think many of us need to relax a little bit, sit back and then just, you know, be, uh, allow yourself to be and be vulnerable and share those messages with people and ask for what you want. Um, What is the one, uh, I guess, mindset hack that you would share with our listeners in um, asking for what you want? What do you do yourself personally when you know you're wanting to ask for something where you know you may shy away or there's a possibility you might shy away oh yeah you know it's still tough uh, so I can't say I, I wish I could tell you I was like Beyonce I woke up like this I still have to push myself to, <laughs> to ask. Uh-huh. It's, it's not it's not um it's a muscle that I continuously have to flex and mm-hmm. uh, the one thing that I will say that helps me is when I Either, rather I do it with somebody or I do it by myself, but I role play different scenarios. Uh-huh. So if they say this, what do I say? Right. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> I write it down. So ideally if I have someone from my squad to kind of talk it through and say, well, what will I say if they say this, what's the worst possible thing they could say? Right. And then uh-huh. how do I respond to that? Or I'll write out the different scenarios. And for me, whenever I ask for something, be it big in my mind or small, uh-huh. I still need to come prepared because since it's not natural to me, I could kind of 
crumble my words and do different things. So I have mm. to really set the intention for what's going to happen. And, um, and maybe even too the thing that I've told myself is maybe they can't do it right now. Right. But is it, it's not still off the table. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because that person may or may not say what I want them to say, doesn't mean that it can't happen. And so mm-hmm. again, I think going back to the stories that we tell ourselves, maybe it, it could be a yes, but we'll never know the part of the equation we can control is what we do. But if we mm. never ask, then we won't know what the answer is. That's true. If you never ask, you never know. And yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and I think, like you said, if you prepare yourself for the worst case scenario, the worst case outcome of like the worst thing they can say is no. And can you live with it? Well, yeah, because I do think that sometimes the regret of not asking and, and the unknown is is it tears you up more than just knowing the answer, right? Exactly. I mean, have you ever... I remember I had one boss and uh, she said, why didn't you just ask me? And I'm mm. like, I did not just ask you. <laughs> yeah. And I wasted so many weeks or months or whatever. And, and yeah. being in the workplace, it requires for many of us leaning into our courage, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that um, that's one tool that I don't think is activated enough. It does take courage, especially if you are uh, one of few, right? You don't Mm -hmm. know what this might do or you're entering in such a high stakes negotiation if you feel that way. And I think we do have to lean into our courage and just push aside our caution because again, we'll never know if we don't ask. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you said that, like someone saying, why didn't you just ask? Because it made me think about years ago when I was working on a program to help women re-enter the workforce. Um, You know, I asked them, like, what made you leave? And they felt like, well, I was in a role and there was no flexibility. And so I just had to leave. And I asked them, well, what did your manager say? Did you talk to your manager about it? And all of them said, no, they just chose to leave. They never asked for the flexibility that they needed. So that made me want to go ask all of the managers that I had been dealing with and saying, like, listen, you've had, you know, some attrition where a lot of these women have left. If they would have asked you for the flexibility and not leave, what would you have done? And they said, oh my God, they were such, you know, a value add to the team. Like I would have made something work. And so it was one of those things where it was, you know, a lose-lose on both situations because the manager didn't ask them before they left, like, is there anything I can do or (laughs) vice versa? And so I realized that the power of just asking the question could, I mean, just come out with a whole other, other, you know, just outcome for you. So I love that you said that, that, you know, you just have to ask. And the worst thing that you can be said is no, but at least then, you know, and you didn't miss an opportunity that could have been there. Yep. Yep. That's amazing. So share a little bit about your book in terms of for me, just out of curiosity, what is the favorite part of your book or what piece of the book that you were like, oh, I've just got to get this message out? What piece of it? And it might be the whole thing, but what is your favorite <laughs> chapter? What is your favorite takeaway or your favorite quote that you hope that listeners will um, take away with them? Yeah, you know, I think the it wasn't my favorite thing initially. <laughs> I'll say this, uh, uh-huh. but having the book out in the world, I almost eight months, um, I think it was the vulnerability throughout the book, uh, mm-hmm. because vul- being vulnerable wasn't something I showed too much uh, in my career, because mm-hmm. I thought that I had to be like this 
strong black woman at all times, right? And Mm -hmm. what I realized was when I wrote the book that in order to change the way the workplace works for women of color, it's going to require us to talk about some things that we hadn't talked about out loud. And I had to lean into that vulnerability. And Mm -hmm. what I found was I was really scared about doing that. Am I telling too much? Am I, you know, what am I doing? And what I found is I've received thousands of messages from women saying, thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for telling uh, our stories. Um, Mm -hmm. They're very similar. And I look at this book, uh, not as my book, that my first book, but our book, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, And for me, I think that I didn't realize how important, yes, I know Brene Brown talks about vulnerability and I get it, but Mm -hmm. I didn't realize (laughs) how it like really touched people in a way uh, that now they're allowing their self to be a little more vulnerable and say me too as well. And so I didn't realize that how important that piece would be. I I talk about a lot of things in the book, but I think the vulnerability and then our allies being able to be empathetic to those Mm -hmm. stories, right? Mm -hmm. It made it real. It wasn't just all those black women over there, right? Like they can get into it. And so for me, I I didn't realize how important, how impactful that would be. That's beautiful. And I love that you you were so vulnerable in your book because the other piece is we tend to, as women of color, create our circle or a network. And like you said, we talk to each other, we're vulnerable with each other. We talk about, oh my God, you're dealing with this too. But then we're kind of preaching to the choir. We're not telling the people who really need to hear these stories, the stories. And so I feel like your book is out there and I would encourage, you know, more people to, if you can't have that courageous conversation, and you're afraid or you're not giving the other person the benefit of the doubt that they can be the courageous leader, maybe they can just gift your book to them and they can be a courageous reader yes. and, and walk away and then be able to, to um, you know, to, to maybe make things a little bit better for both parties. Uh, so kudos to you. I love your book and I love the message that it is sending. It's, you know, so aligned with what we here at Beyond Bears are trying to do and helping women accelerate their success. And so I so much appreciate your time and you sharing your story and, and your book. And so I'm sure our listeners are going to be curious as to how they could get in contact with you, how can they hear more from you and your podcast, and where can they find your book. So if you would kindly just share with us how to be in contact, and um, we can certainly continue these conversations. Yes. Well, thank you again, Monica, for having me. I've enjoyed our conversation. Everyone can get the book wherever you like to buy your books. Uh, It's on indie bookstores, you know, the Amazons, the Barnes and mm-hmm. Noble. I did read my own audio book if that's the way you like to read your books. Uh, awesome. But you can find me at mindahearts.com. All of my information is there. Beautiful. Awesome. And again, thank you so much, Binda. And good luck to you. And we'll be looking for your next book. Thank you. Thanks for listening. There are thousands of podcasts out there and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources referenced in this episode. And be sure to take the quiz on the website. Your score will tell you where you are, what helps you gain momentum, and what holds you back. You'll also get a free guide with cutting-edge career strategies. We'd also love to hear from you. Share your comments and topic suggestions on IamBeyondBarriers.com and we'll be sure to address them in future episodes. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and rate the podcast or just tell a friend about it. See you next episode.